Long before the world was created, there was an island, floating in the sky upon which the sky people lived. They lived quietly and happily. No one ever died or was born or experienced sadness. However, one day, one of the sky women realized that she was going to give birth to twins. She told her husband, who flew into a rage. In the center of the island, there was a tree which gave light to the entire island since the sun had yet to be created. He tore up this tree, creating a huge hole in the middle of the island. Curiously, the woman peered into the hole. Far below, she could see the waters that covered the earth. At that moment, her husband pushed her. She fell through the hole, tumbling towards the waters below. Water animals already existed on the earth, so far below the floating island, two birds saw the Sky Woman fall. Just before she reached the waters, they caught her on their backs and brought her to the other animals. Determined to help the woman, they dove into the water to get the mud from the bottom of the seas. One after another, the animals tried and failed. Finally, Little Toad tried, and when he reappeared, his mouth was full of mud. The animals took it and spread it on the back of Big Turtle. The mud began to grow and grow and grow until it became the size of North America. Then the woman stepped onto the land. She sprinkled the dust into the air and created stars. Then she created the moon and sun. The Sky Woman gave birth to twin sons. She named one Sapling. He grew to be kind and gentle. She named the other Flint and his heart was cold as his name. They grew quickly and began filling the earth with their creations. Sapling created what is good. He made animals that are useful to humans. He made rivers that went two ways. And into these he put fish without bones. He made plants that people could eat easily. If he was able to do all the work himself, there would be no suffering in the world. Flint destroyed much of Sapling's work and created all that is bad. He made rivers flow only in one direction. He put bones in the fish and thorns on berry bushes. He created winter, but Sapling gave it life so that it could move to give way to spring. He created monsters, which his brother drove beneath the earth. Eventually, Sapling and Flint decided to fight till one conquered the other. Neither was able to win at first, but finally Flint was beaten. Because he was a god, Flint could not die, so he was forced to live on Big Turtle's back. Occasionally, his anger is felt in the form of a volcano. That was one of many versions of the Iroquois creation myth, being an oral culture that has been around for a very, very long time. It's difficult to find the definitive version, and you'll find that the details change drastically. But the story of a woman falling from heaven onto the earth, being helped by animals, and creating the earth that we know today is the essential core of the story, and you'll find that in pretty much every version. A couple things in this story that would be different from you know, creationists that you might be familiar with is that the animals are actually helping the person. The person is not the creator of the animal. The uh, person is not naming the animals. The animals are actually coming to the aid of the sky woman who fell to the earth. They are the saviors. They are the helpers in that case. Another thing is that the earth was seemingly created by accident. The earth that we know with the land and that's habitable that we would recognize was created because of an accident. You see that in some cultures, but in the ones that you, the listener, might be more familiar with, you probably have never seen that before. One thing that you probably did recognize is the good versus evil, and the fact that good and evil have some sort of eternal struggle, and that at times they're near equals, and who knows what the outcome's going to be. And that's personified in this story by a pair of twin brothers. And we see that a lot too, a pair of twin brothers, or just simply two brothers who come to fight one another. 
So Cain and Abel, Romulus and Remus, there's, there's tons of examples. These shared elements, they're not because of transatlantic contact and the Iroquois had some brief relation with uh, the ancient Romans or the Hebrews. These are just common themes that exist in human culture. Brothers fighting with one another, the, the ideas of good and evil, and those two struggling with one another, uh, a husband and a wife not getting along. These are all things that are just common to humanity. And it's on the theme of humanity that we're going to pick up on who are the Iroquois. Of course, we're going to learn they didn't even refer to themselves as the Iroquois. Who are the Iroquois? Where do they come from? What are their deep roots? And we're going to learn about that today. Now, we're going to see a bunch of different terms, and I'm going to try to flesh out, even for myself, the differences between them. So Iroquois is going to be, we're going to use that in a cultural term. Those are going to be people who speak an Iroquoian language. But the term Iroquois itself is not a term that they would have used. It's a name put upon them. So we've also heard of the Five Nations, the Iroquois Confederacy, and the Haudenosaunee. Now, the Five Nations is a political term. They're five different tribes, which are nations, that are confederated with one another. They're the Iroquois Confederation. And then their term for it is Haudenosaunee, or Haudenosaunee. I'm still working on the pronunciation. Now, that means uh, people of the Longhouse. So people of the Longhouse. It's symbolic. You have these five nations. They are more or less in a straight line across what is modern-day New York State, and it makes the rough shape of a longhouse, and together they're a family, just like a longhouse would hold an extended family. So the Haudenosaunee, or the Five Nations, or the Confederacy, that is a political and cultural term describing those tribes who have come together to make this political union. But the term Iroquois in general just means any... I'm Well, I'm going to use it to mean anyone inside of this... Uh, Iroquois cultural sphere who spoke the uh, an Iroquoian language, which is going to be much larger than you probably would think at first. So you hear Iroquois, you think of the Five Nations. But before the Europeans moved into the area, the Five Nations probably represented a minority of the Iroquoian people, the people who spoke Iroquois languages. And there's lots of them. There's the Wenro, the Erie, the Huron, the big Huron Confederation. And those are all Iroquoian people. They spoke the language. They had very similar ways of building their villages, shared similar clan systems and religious practices. So it's very hard to wrestle with these terms, but I think it'll become clear as we go on. So the first question I want to tackle is the origin of the Iroquoian people. Where did they come from? If you look at a map of Native American tribes around the time of 1450, the best they can figure it, or 1600, it actually doesn't matter on the year because you'll see something you'll see that there are these Iroquoian people so that includes the five nations and all their related brethren who they may or may not get along with and then surrounding them on three sides are Algonquin people or Algonquin people I'm more more comfortable with Algonquin that's what I grew up with so I'm probably going to use that and if I offend anyone I'm sorry but that you know what I mean it's Algonquin so it's, it's kind of an anomaly that you have these Iroquois people right here, and then they're completely surrounded by this group of people who speak a completely unrelated language. They're not related even remotely, okay? There's probably some shared language back and forth just because of proximity, but the root of both of those family trees are not connected. So historians and linguists and everyone else in the field who would be interested in this, it's, it's kind of strange. You look at a map and you go, how did they get, did they start there and they were overwhelmed? Did they push their way into this area, the uh, western New York, uh, central New York? How did they get to this area 
and then were surrounded by people who seemingly had no relation to them. It's kind of a mystery. So we're going to look at the origins of the Iroquois people, and we're going to do that right now. So like I promised, that term Iroquois, we're going to talk about that. It originally probably came from the Algonquin people, who are a bunch of different tribes, and that's just a general term too. But the Algonquin people seem to have been the ones who named the group we call the Iroquois, the Iroquois. Because in their language, it means something like snake people or red adder snake people. It's It has a negative connotation to it, because as we're going to see, the Algonquin and the Iroquois don't always get along. And that's a generalization, because there's tons of exceptions to that, so I've already proved myself a liar. But so that term... Iroquois is already coming from somewhere else, but that's the origin of it. It's probably Algonquin, and then it was translated into the French, and then, of course, the English and the Dutch who moved in adopted the term from the French. That's, that's probably how that came about, and there's some debate there. Among the various accounts by all the different Iroquois people who have written down their belief or their tradition of where the Iroquois people came from or how they came about, there's a lot of differences, and I, I would hazard to say there isn't one official story. It seems to be there is a group of people who believe that, you know, it's a religious idea that the people sprouted up from the earth, and that where they sprouted up was exactly where their tribes lived. And so they are a part of that land, and the land is part of them. It's a very harmonious and interesting idea that you're, you're tied to the earth so much you actually sprang from the earth at some point, well, your people did. And then there's a, another strain of, of uh, tradition that says that the Iroquois came from far out west, even maybe on the other side of the Mississippi River. This tradition claims that the Iroquois started off near the Pawnee, and then they moved up the Mississippi, up the Ohio River Valley, into Pennsylvania, into southern New York, northern New York, and they, then they were subjugated by the Adirondack, who were a Algonquin tribe. So that's how we get the name Adirondack for the mountains. You learn something, there you go. Eventually, they were able to throw off the Adirondack, and that's how they pretty much got to where they were today, the, the places they were settling in, the areas they were mastering. I found other Native American sources that put the origin somewhere else. Uh, some Mohawk elders claim that the Iroquois originally came from the Southwest, the American Southwest, and that the Hopi are their distant cousins. So that's, that's drastically different than the other theories that we saw. Then they lived along the Mississippi, and that's probably where they became friends with the Pawnee. Then they moved on to Ohio, and then that's how they got to the Northeast. And so we have these, these different stories that seem to conflict, and then some of them actually seem to just be more elaborate or go back further in time than other ones. So there's no consensus there. And like I said with the Iroquois people, it's not they're not one people. I know I say that, but they're many different tribes, many different traditions, and we're talking about a span of hundreds of years. So there's going to be some discrepancies, and there's going to be a difference of opinion. But now let's look at the scholarly... Uh, background here. Let's look at what linguists say and archaeologists and historians and all those sorts of folks, anthropologists. Where did these Iroquois people come from? Or how did they come about and how did they end up in this sea of Algonquin people? Early anthropological theories were kind of in line with the things the Iroquois uh, felt about themselves and, and thought about their history, that the Iroquois came from somewhere along the Mississippi River, and that's where they learned agriculture, because compared to their Algonquin neighbors, the Iroquois were so much more into agriculture. They, they had vast stores of, of corn and whatnot, especially the Huron, who are an Iroquois people, or in modern-day Ontario, roughly. They took farming to such an extreme that they were called the, the, the storehouse of grain for the Algonquins. They would sell to the Algonquins. So early theories were thinking, well, they must have come from somewhere down south where agriculture was more practiced and not so much hunting and gathering. 
And then when the linguists get involved and they start breaking down the different Iroquoian languages, Mohawk, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, Onondaga, Tuscarora, and, and all the other ones who we don't typically think of part of the, uh, the Iroquois people, found that basically the uh, Iroquois languages are only separated by what they determine to be, you know, around a thousand years. So you go back a thousand years, you end up with the proto-language, the original Iroquoian language that the all the other ones are descended from. Now, a thousand years is not a very long time at all. English, which I'm assuming you speak because you're listening to me and I'm speaking English. English is a Germanic language. It's distantly related to German and Danish and Dutch and all these other languages. But it goes back quite a bit further than a thousand years before you get to that common root. Now, the Iroquois language, most of them are mutually intelligible, which means if you can speak the one, you can pretty much understand the other. There might be a little bit of confusion, but it's a little more than an accent, basically. So that means that the distance between them is not that great. In 1984, a linguist named Marina Mifon, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, she reconstructed what that proto-language would have sounded like, at least of the northern Iroquois. Because here's a big secret. The Cherokee down south are also an Iroquois people, but we'll get to that. She reconstructed this language, and she found that the shared vocabulary, the, the, the roots there, are, are, are uh, mountainous in origin. They're, so what she suggests is that the Iroquois people originally came up from Appalachia. They were up in the hills of Pennsylvania or maybe even a little further south, and then the bulk of them went north into the Great Lakes region, New York, and, you know, up and around uh, the St. Lawrence. And then, you know, the Cherokee kind of found their way down south. That's what she suggests, and that kind of makes a lot of sense, especially if she can break apart the language and show, wow, at the root of this language is not a seafaring culture, not a, uh, a valley-dwelling culture, not one that's around rivers and lakes, but one that's up in the mountains. So this theory believes that around probably the uh, 8th century AD or CE, whatever you want to use, these people that were living up in the mountains, up in the near the Allegheny, Allegheny Plateau, around the areas like that in Pennsylvania and whatnot, that they slowly began to move north into what we now call like central and western New York and uh, the uh, southern parts of Canada around the uh, Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence and all those areas. So the this theory believes that the Iroquois moved in and by and large replaced or assimilated whoever was already living there or pushed them out. And there, there's some evidence to suggest this because if you look at the Algonquin languages, the linguists have also noticed, well, geez, there's a split between the Eastern and the Central Algonquin languages. And these occur somewhere they calculate between 500 and 1000 AD. So right when the Iroquois would have moved into that little center spot that we talked about, they would have split off the Iroquois, I mean the Algonquin, and then the Algonquin languages would have diverged. So the linguists have evidence on both sides of the fence here that the Iroquois suddenly moved in at some point. And in the conversation, other types of scientists have chimed in and they've, they've pointed out that, geez, this northern migration seems to align with this medieval warming period to some respect. It's, it's a little loose of a, of a uh, theory, but that could add to it too. So why did the Iroquois move north? Well, the environment was getting warmer. Living north made more sense. It was, it was uh, applicable to their way of life suddenly. The other wing of this debate is the in situ uh, approach, the in situ theory. Now, you'll hear that term sometimes. You probably never heard it in your life. I barely have ever heard it. It just means in place, the in place theory that the Iroquois people, just as some of the Iroquois people claim, developed right in that general area where we would associate them with, with our history today, that they developed in Western New York, Central New York, parts of Ontario today. That's where they were found, and that's where they've lived for a very, very long time. That's the in situ theory. And there's some evidence to support the in situ theory. 
Now moving on to archaeology, archaeologists are always digging up the evidence of cultures that existed in the past for which we don't have any written record of. We don't know what they called themselves, so we have to call them something. Well, in New York State, there was the Owasco culture, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Owasco culture. And that's a material culture. They dig up these things, and they've named it the Owasco culture. Who knows what those people called themselves at that time? There are many who believe that the Owasco culture, around 1000 AD, would become the Iroquois that we know in the historical record. So there's the theory that they've just kind of always been there. And then there's other people who think, well, the Owasco culture only really came about after they migrated from the areas we talked about before. It's all very confusing. I promise this podcast will be more defined in the future, but we're dealing with prehistory before the written record. So it's all theories and conjecture here. All right. So the Owasco people, is it's thought that they became the Iroquois. They lived in the same places, had similar ways of building their villages from what we can tell from the existing archaeological record. That's a theory, too, and that would align with those who believe that, hey, we've, we've been living here a long time, and we just kind of shot up here. So around the year 1000 to 1300 AD, we'll see the uh, people moving away from rivers and onto hilltops. That's what the archaeological record shows. So they're getting away from the convenience of the water, and they're moving up on the hills to protect themselves is the, the leading theory. And then all of a sudden, we're seeing palisades, walls of poles being put up, and ditches in front of those walls. So that people fall into them if they, you know, charge the wall. They don't see the ditch. They fall into the ditch. Makes the wall seem higher because now you're in a ditch. So around this period, scientists think that there was a general time of aggressive warfare. Because people are literally changing where they live to protect themselves. And it's right after this period that the Europeans start to show up. Now you might say to yourself, hey, how is it that archaeologists are able to determine what's an Algonquin site or what's an Iroquois site? What would be the difference there? Because to the average American, it would all seem kind of like the same thing, just based on the assumptions you might have. Well, in Iroquois site, we're going to see longhouses. Lots of longhouses packed close together. We'll see, like we talked about, palisades going around it. A semi-organized structure and a real sense of community. You could tell that this community was planned together. Whereas the example that you would find around where I live, around the Albany area, you'll find Mohican, who are an Algonquin people, and they'll have smaller huts closer to wigwam designs, and they're spread out, and the villages are much smaller, and they, they're more temporary, and they're close to the water, and there's less agriculture overall. So really, on the face of it, you might think, it's a Native American dwelling, but in reality, they're worlds apart, and even though we're pretty much in the same area, the Iroquois are living a completely different lifestyle than the Algonquin people. And you could tell just based on the, the stumps that are left in the ground from the poles they drove into the ground. Their villages looked drastically different when you really get down to the planning of it. But now we're getting down to the real close nitty gritty. This is right before contact, right before Samuel de Champlain would come down from the north or Henry Hudson would come up from the south the Hudson River. So what's what's happening right before we have a written record? That 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 little bit of darkness that we can't quite see into. What what was there? What what can we glean from it? Well, the archaeological record shows that the Mohawk were suddenly becoming a power in the region. It's shown that there are different types of Iroquois people who lived up near the St. Lawrence and their pottery disappears from where they were, meaning something happened to them. And then those pottery designs are showing up in Mohawk sites, implying that captives were taken and they were carrying on their native pottery culture in the new culture. They were being assimilated slowly. So right before we have a written record, we know the Mohawk were starting to become a power in the region. And I know I promised you that I'd be more definite and there'd be less questions, but now we get to this other question. When did the five nations, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee, when did it start? 
this has been an issue of debate for a very long time. And it's very hard to nail down. There's one camp, well, there's a lot of different camps, but one says it developed before the Europeans showed up. And the Europeans had no influence at on whatsoever. And then there's another camp that says, well, when the Europeans started moving into the Algonquin-controlled areas, it changed everything on this side of the continent, and it created the pressures that created the Confederacy. And then there's another camp that says it was the European influence that caused these Iroquois tribes to band together. But before we start arguing over which is the truth, what is more plausible, let's look at the actual story of the foundation of the Haudenosaunee. There was a long period of war, longer than any man's lifespan. The Iroquois were at each other's neck, tribe against tribe, brother against brother. The five nations were the Mohawk, the Oneidas, the Cayugas, the Senecas, and the Onondagas. Tribe fought with tribe, and in tribes, villages fought with villages, and in villages, family fought with families, and even the families were fighting amongst themselves. Fear and hatred reigned in the land, and nobody was safe. On the opposite shores of the Great Lakes, among the Huron nation, lived a woman and her daughter. One night as the woman slept, she dreamt that her daughter had a son named Biganawida, who would bring a message of peace and power from the chief of the great sky spirits to all the warring nations across the waters. And sure enough, the dream came about. A son was born to her daughter, and they called him Diganawida. When he had grown to be a man, he told them of his desire to sail across the water and bring his message of peace and power to the five fighting tribes. His mother and grandmother consented, and Diganawida stepped into a canoe of white stone and rowed across the lake. When the people saw him floating in a boat made of stone, they were filled with wonder, and when they heard what he had to say, they became willing to abandon their weapons and adopt peaceful ways. Daganawina didn't stay in any place for long. He traveled from one village to the next, always moving eastward, telling the people his message of hope. One day he reached the Mohawk tribe, whose chief was Hiawatha. Hiawatha was a fierce cannibal, renowned for being the best warrior in the land, but recently he had felt unable to fight and could not sleep at nights. I come with good tidings from the chief of the sky spirits, Diganawida said. Fighting must cease in the land. The good spirit never intended that blood should flow between human beings. But if we do not fight, one man objected, we will be killed by our neighboring tribes. The neighboring tribes have already accepted my message of peace, said Diganawida, and Hiawatha's tribe then accepted his message as well. When the time came for Diganawida to leave, he gave Hiawatha a parting piece of advice. There is one I wish to warn you of, he said. He is the chief of the Anandagas who lives above the lake. He will not listen to my words and has great powers to use against those who do. So saying, he left with ease. Hiawatha had three daughters, and in the months ensuing Diganawida's departure, they all died mysteriously. Suspecting the evil man he had been warned of, and filled with grief, Hiawatha abandoned his tribe and his home, and left to find Diganawida. After a long and difficult journey, he found him, and Diganawida's wise and kind words of consolation succeeded in dispelling his grief. They spent many days together, the end of which Hiawatha pledged to help Diganawida bring the tidings of peace to the five tribes. They parted ways and did not meet again until there was only one man left who had not accepted their message of peace and power, the evil chief of the Onondaga. They journeyed to this mountain together and they found him in a cave above the lake. Hiawatha was shocked to see he was more of a monster than a man, with a hideous face and serpents entwined in his hair. They talked to him for a long time, and after many hours of discussion and persuasion, he began to smile. I will accept your plan of peace, he said. His face lost all traces of ugliness, and Hiawatha helped him to comb the serpents out of his hair. 
They turned down the mountain, where all the tribes were gathered and began a great meeting. Naganawido proposed that they would form one nation, and told them the laws they should follow, which became their constitution. They would be the Haudenosaunee Nation, later known as the Iroquois Confederacy. And when the meeting was over, they buried their weapons. Daganawida planted a tree above, and the tree became known as the Tree of Peace. Daganawida then left, leaving Hiawatha in his place. If you like that story, consider going to longhousepodcast.com. I believe the name of the podcast is officially the Iroquois History and Legends Podcast. You might be, fi- be able to find that on some streaming service. Their very first episode is a retelling of that story from a first-person point of view, and I believe it, it shifts a little bit. And it's just fantastic. I couldn't come close to copying it, so I went with the more traditional route. But I, I really recommend uh, listening to that version because it, it really is uh, good storytelling. And I, I'm not sure who uh, runs those podcasts or who, who puts that stuff together, but it's just fantastic. So after listening to that story, I imagine, use the listener, you, you, you see similar archetypical characters from other cultures you might be familiar with. Daganawida is a Merlin-like figure. He's powerful. There's lots of other stories of him doing all sorts of fantastic things to woo people over to the side of peace. He's very much like a Merlin or even a John the Baptist because he's coming before this uh, great leader and they know each other and they have this relationship, but he's the older, wiser one. And then Hiawatha himself is like a Jesus character in that he's going to lead the way. He's going to be the one to to solidify this great peace. Uh, other leaders I could think of, he's he's like uh, Moses or even a, um, a, a King David, right? He's some sort of foundational leader. And that's just from the Judeo-Christian background. If we move to other cultures, you know, ancient Greece, each city-state, some demigod was the founder of the city-state. And there's a great tale about how this, this guy grew up and did all these feats and then founded a city. Hiawatha is is the founder, isn't he? And the message he brings is peace. He started out as a cannibal, as they say, and vengeful in, in other tales. Not a good guy. And he is brought around. And then the two of them go off and they bring around this evil Onondaga chief with snakes in his hair and everything. So the message really, I mean, if you branch it off from the uh, creation story, that there's good and evil, the message is really good can not only triumph over evil, good can turn evil back into good. Good will prevail and good can absorb the bad. And it's a really great message. And I often wonder, like, let, let's say the old world doesn't exist. It's just the new world, just the Americas. What would have happened if the Haudenosaunee were just left to their own devices and then different cultures in, like, Mesoamerica, like the Aztecs, their own, throughout time and allowed to develop on their own? What would happen when those two cultures came to clash with one another? What interesting religions and uh, works of literature and ideas and social structures would have developed. Really, really interesting stuff, and I there's really no answer. It's just something you can play out in your head. One of the laws that were put in place right away was the the banning of blood feuds. Now, that's a great sounding word, blood feuds, but what, what does that mean in the context? Well, a blood feud is basically you kill my brother, I kill your brother. Well, now I've killed your brother, so now you're going to seek revenge, you're going to come back here, and you're going to kill, you know, my cousin. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And one murder can just turn into an all-out war. Um, the the most recent American example that a lot of people would know would be the, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys, which started over a contested pig. And it's, it's the same principle. You have hurt my family, I will hurt your family. There's no ending to that. It's a blood feud. And we see this in a lot of 
tribal societies going back through time. It's in a lot of uh, Middle Eastern societies. A couple thousand years ago, you'll see these feuds that start over a very small incident turn into this big deal. You'll see it in even medieval Italy, where people are actually banished from towns after murders. It even features in uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which isn't, you know, exactly accurately Italian, but... Um, one of their solutions was to just banish the person who committed the murder so that there couldn't be another murder and another murder and another murder. You break the chain. And in the Iroquois Confederacy, banning those blood feuds meant that in between the tribes that agreed to it, you wouldn't have this escalation, this domestic war on the uh, local home front. Really smart idea. Really good way to handle that because it's a very difficult situation. How do you tell a brother not to avenge the death of his brother? How do you get that through to their heads and yet somehow in the Iroquois Confederacy in the Haudenosaunee it worked and that's the foundation to the stability that would allow them to turn outward. Scholars don't doubt that Hiawatha and these other figures were actual historical people. There's no doubt there. They definitely did exist. So the question people debate is when did all these events occur? When did the league come together, the Haudenosaunee? And that, that's been debated back and forth for a very long time. The earliest native sources say something to the effect of, well, the League was formed during the generation before this current one. In the sense of, like, everyone alive now didn't know anyone who was alive when the League formed. So it's just outside of recent memory. And that's the frustration level right there. Because there's nobody alive who can say exactly when it happened. But they get the sense that it was pretty recent. It was actually just that next layer. So this would be like the uh, the times the life of your great great grandparents. So you didn't know your great great grandparents. You probably if you were lucky, you knew your great grandparents. So they're just on the outside there, right? So somebody in your lifetime probably knew somebody who was of that generation. That's how distant the sense of it is. So scholars put the foundation of the uh, Haudenosaunee and native sources anywhere between like 1150 to 1450. And then sometimes even before or after that period of time, we really don't know the exact date. And so people will be debating that forever. But does the exact date actually matter? Not to me particularly. So next episode, we're done looking at the origins of the Haudenosaunee and the Iroquois. Next, we're going to dive into a reconstruction of what their culture and government and several other aspects of their way of lives were before European contact. We're just on the cusp of it. So we're going to try to peel away the layers of time, and we're going to try to see what the Iroquois lifestyle was like, let's say, in the year uh, 1608, right before Henry Hudson sails up the, the Hudson River, or right before Samuel de Champlain comes down through the uh, St. Lawrence and whatnot. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. The next episode, I promise, will be less academic. There'll be less outstanding questions, and it'll be more descriptive and experiential. Um, I want to drop you basically down into an Iroquois village and let you look around and see what it was like before the uh, Europeans showed up. So thank you for tuning in. This was... What's the name of this podcast again? The Other States of America Podcast.